Now, this is the sixth week of our series, Hope Where You Are. And in this series, we've been asking the question, God, if we could get our priorities, if I could get my values lined up with your priorities and your values, God, what could you use me to do? What would you like to use me to accomplish? God, who would you like to use me to reach? And we've learned so far in the series that the things that equip us to be used in the world, they're different than the things that equip us to be used in God's kingdom. And it's because, see, the world focuses on externals, things like how we look, how we act, what we know, who we know, what we have, where'd you go to school, where did you grow up? But that's why we've been basing our series on a verse that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says, God doesn't look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. See, we're, exp- we're, we're impressed by the externals, but God is looking at the heart. In other words, when it comes to being used by God, God is looking for an entirely different set of criteria. And the things that, that God's looking for, they're not necessarily things that you're born with. They're not even things that you can develop over your lifetime. Which means this, which means it's a level playing field. It also means that all of us have the potential to be used greatly in God's kingdom if we will just begin to focus in on what he is looking for. And so far we've learned that God is looking for people with available hearts. And then we saw that he's looking for people who have a pure heart. And we said, that's not a perfect heart. That's not a sinless heart or all of us would be in trouble, right? He's looking for people who have an unmixed heart. In other words, our heart lines up with God's heart. We, we have the same goals and objectives that God has. So we're in alignment together. So he's looking for people with a pure heart. And then we looked into the life of Daniel and we saw that God is looking for people who have an obedient heart, who are gonna be people of integrity, who are going to obey, obey his word regardless of the cost, regardless of what society thinks, regardless of what culture thinks, we're going to be true to God. And then Donnie looked into the life of Elisha and we learned we don't have to have everything, know everything to be used by God. Then last week he looked into the life of Ehud, the campuses that were open. And if you didn't get to get to Morrisville last week, you should go online and watch it because Donnie reminded us that God can use us. If we're available, he can use us with our infirmities. He can use us with our weaknesses. Now this weekend, We're going to also see that God is looking for hearts that can see as he sees. An example of this kind of heart is found, I think, in one of our favorite stories in the Bible. In fact, other than Jesus being born in a manger, see, we love that story. This may be the most loved story in the Bible. It's the story of David and Goliath. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have your Bible this weekend, turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. Let me just begin by giving you a little bit of background so you'll understand the context of the story. By the way, every great story, you got to have some tension, right? And in our story, we have tension because there are two armies that are getting ready to square off to go to battle. One is the good guys and one is the bad guys. The good guys are the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, God's chosen people. So we have the army of Israel going up against the bad guys who are the Philistines. And they are the bad guys all the way through the Old Testament. In fact, every time you read about the Philistines, it's kind of like the empire in Star Wars. You should probably hear in the back of your mind, dun, 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 because they're never up to any good. They're always up to bad. And just so you know, the Philistines were from the country of Philistia, which was located what we now, against what we now know as the Mediterranean and see. In fact, I have a map to give you an idea of where it was located. And what's interesting is that, as you can see, Philistia was very, very close to some key Israeli cities, cities like Bethlehem, cities like Jerusalem. In fact, there's only about 30 miles between Philistia and the city of Jerusalem. So understand, Philistia was strategically located to be a constant pain in the backside of the Israelites. And one of the reasons the Philistines were such a threat is because they had a huge advantage. They had a corner on the iron industry. In fact, they had some of the only iron weapons in the region. And even though it was a small country, 
They had this unique military advantage. They, they just had the best weapons. But because of the close proximity of these two countries, Philistia, the Philistines were constantly trying to, to gain ground, to take some land away from Israel. Sound familiar? Same old thing, been going on for thousands of years, right? So with that as context, let's just pick up the story. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war, and they assembled at Sarkot in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, Elah, Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And uh, a few months ago in March, I took some of you, we went to Israel and we actually stood in the valley of Elah. And it's about a mile wide and on each side you have these hills. And so you can imagine this is where this battle was taking place. And it says the Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. Now get this, he was six feet, or he was six cubits and a span, which means nothing to us, but if you, if you translate it to our math, that means he's about nine and a half, maybe 10 feet tall. And you read about his armor beginning in verse five. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's like 175 pounds. So just his coat of armor, 175 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. So I mean, understand, this is a bad dude, okay? Probably has a patch over his eye. He is a bad dude. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That means just the tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds. And according to this story, every day this giant of a man, he would walk out into the valley of Elah and he would taunt the army of Israel. In fact, he would suggest something that originated in the area that we now know as Greece. He would suggest a representative battle. And a representative battle was usually suggested when it was a small issue, maybe like a border skirmish, a border dispute. And instead of just a bunch of soldiers dying, they would decide that an army would choose a warrior from each side and they would go mano a mano. And it was at least believed from the uh, Philistines' belief system that it was actually the gods fighting through these two men. In other words, it was the gods that were going to decide what should be done over these small disputes. But understand, this was a much bigger deal. Because you read in verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And a few verses later, it tells us that this went on for 40 days. So for almost a month and a half, every day Goliath would get up, put his armor on, walk out into the Valley of Elah, and he would suggest, I will represent the Philistines. You pick someone to represent Israel, and whoever wins, the whole army wins. In fact, whoever wins, the whole nation wins. Winner take all, right? And that's easy to do, to suggest something like that when you're 10 feet tall, see? Not a lot of risk there, right? Now understand, David, remember David, David had three brothers, older brothers, who were serving in the Israelite army. And one day, David's father, Jesse, remember we met Jesse the very first week of our uh, series, he called David in from the fields and he said, David, listen, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to put together a little picnic basket. I'm going to put together a little care package. I want you to go down to the battlefront and I want you to check on your brothers and I want you to deliver the package, but I want you to come back and let us know, let me know how your brothers are doing away at war. So you pick it up in verse 20 and this is what it says. Early in the morning, David left the flock in care of a shepherd 
loaded up, he loaded up the care package, and he set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle line, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his line and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. And then they said this, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, excuse me, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. And now notice it says, when Eliab, now let's go back to our very first week. Do you remember when God told the prophet Samuel that he was done with Saul being the king and there was going to be a new king? And he said, Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. Jesse's got a bunch of boys, have them line up. And I'm going to let you know which one of those young men is going to be the next king of Israel. It was Eliab, the oldest, that Samuel looked at and thought, wow, that's a good looking man. He's tall, he's dark, he's handsome. Obviously, he's the next king of Israel. And that's when God said to Samuel, whoa, 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 whoa. Man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. He's not the one. And we found out David was going to be the one. Eliab hasn't forgotten that. Okay, he's got some issues, right? Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep? Jab, jab, jab in the wilderness. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. And I love David's response. Now what have I done? Can't do anything, right? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. Again, the matter was, now what is the guy going to get that goes out and defeats Goliath? So David's really interested in this. The men answered him as before. When David... What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now understand at this time in the story, David is about 13 or 14 years old. That's it. So think he's like a freshman, maybe a sophomore in high school. And he walks into the throne room and he stands before King Saul. And he says in front of all of his military commanders, don't you guys worry. I got it. I got it. I will take care of this. And probably nervous laughter, just like that, right? And then it says in verse 33, Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Peter would not be happy with David, right? Your servant has killed the lion and the bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Now here's the key phrase, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Now you gotta give it to him, he's got moxie. I mean, he's got an incredible level of confidence, right? But as you think about this story, 
Do you know what the problem was for Saul and all of his men? The problem is this. The problem was they were thinking that their potential for victory in this situation hinged on what they could do, who they were, who they were related to, the skills that they had developed as soldiers over the years. In other words, they were depending on all the things that the world says you got to have in place if you're going to be successful. But the reality is the real reason they were so afraid is because they've been standing on the hill every day looking out into the valley and they had been comparing themselves to Goliath. And they're thinking, he is so big. He is so mean. He is so brave. We are so short. And we are so nice. And we are so scared to death. Look at him. Look at us. There is no possible way we can defeat him. In other words, their focus was on the externals. They focused on Goliath's size, his ability, his strength. They were focused on what he could do versus what they thought they could do. But the biggest mistake they made was this. And this is a mistake, I'll just be honest. This is a mistake I make all the time, okay? And I'm a professional Christian. You know what I'm saying? I get paid to do this stuff. (laughs) Their biggest mistake was this. They forgot to factor in God. You see, from their perspective, it was about the army of Goliath taking on the army of Israel. And as a result, they relied on their strength. They relied on their ability, And that's why King Saul's sitting back saying, whoever will take on this guy and defeat him, I will give them my daughter in marriage. And all the Israeli soldiers are looking over at his daughter going, what else you got? What else you got? I'll throw in the wealth of half my kingdom. Your family will never pay taxes again. But even with all of this, there are still no takers. My point is this. Saul is focused on his own strength. He's focused on his own resources. He is thinking deep down inside, this is an obstacle we cannot overcome. There's absolutely nothing that we're going to be able to do. And in the meantime, the Philistines are having the time of their lives taunting the Israelite army and the God of the Israelite army. But then David shows up and he asks the right question in verse 26. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is this big blowhard? Who is this loser? Who is this guy that defies the God of the army of Israel? You see, David's perspective was this. Goliath isn't our problem. Goliath is God's problem. Goliath hasn't come up against you and me. He's come up against the armies of God. And Goliath is no problem for God. Problem for me? Yes. Problem for you? Yes. Problem for God? Absolutely not. And so understand, David introduces an entirely different perspective into the equation. David's like, this isn't isn't Goliath's strength against my strength. This is between Goliath's strength and God's strength. In other words, David did what we so often as Christians fail to do. He factored in God. And what started out as this obstacle became an opportunity for God to show up and for God to demonstrate his awesome power. By the way, there's a great lesson here for all of us. Do you know who God uses? God uses men. He uses women. He uses students who are willing to see obstacles as opportunities. I'm telling you, that's who God uses. In other words, your potential for usefulness in God's kingdom depends on your ability to view the things 
that look like obstacles to God being able to use you, things like your habits, things like your past, things like your failures, things like your shortcomings. It depends on your ability to view those things as opportunities for God to show up in the circumstances of your life. And I got to tell you something, in the area of our lives where we are so inadequate, I'm telling you, God is more than adequate. But do you know what else David knew that everybody else was overlooking? David knew that God doesn't get hung up on how. See, the Israelite army, they're lining up over here on this hill every day, and Goliath's coming out saying, hey, why don't one of you cowards come out and fight me? And they're going, but how? And God is going like, I got the how figured out. I'm just looking for a who. David understood that. David's thinking, how's no problem for God? Good gracious, he created the universe out of nothing. Obviously, how isn't a big deal to God. God just needed a who. This has been my personal experience. Whenever God has nudged me to do something that he wanted me to do, he never showed me the how. In fact, it wasn't until I was committed to being the who that God said, now that you've committed to doing it, now I'm going to show you how we're going to get it done. I think this church is one of the best illustrations of that. When we came here and started the church and we were in the school and then we moved to the fire trap on Chapel Hill Road and we outgrew it and we enlarged the auditorium and we outgrew it and then we went to two services and then we went to three services and then we started Saturday services, but we were out of seats and we were out of parking. But the, the, the prices of land were going up crazy around Cary and Raleigh at the time. We couldn't afford to buy land. And guess what? Out of the blue, God says, I got it. And he sends a businessman to us who doesn't even attend our church. And he gave us this piece of property that we're sitting on today. He said, here it is. It's yours. But you know what I laid in bed wondering about? So how are we going to build a building? We don't have any money. And even if we build the building, how are we going to afford the utilities? I mean, we can't even afford that. And I'm telling you, it was as if God said, listen, I got the how figured out. I just need a who. And sure enough, by the time this building was built, in two years, in two years, we grew from a church of 1,000 to a church of over 3,000. And we walked into this building with the financial resources to use it for the glory of God. God's like, I got a how. I just need a who. We're having our soft launch out at our Apex campus this week. It's huge, 110,000 square foot building, huge. I remember a few years ago when I walked into that old dumpy warehouse in Apex. It was the biggest eyesore in the entire city of Apex. They should have given it. They should have paid us to take that building and do something with it. Just a dump. And I remember walking in there the first time and trying to imagine, I'm thinking, wow, I, I could maybe, maybe see this being a campus. I don't have a clue how. And I felt like God was saying, well, I, I know how. I just, I just need a who, right? And fortunately, the leadership, we didn't sit around and go, well, we can't do anything until we have all the answers to the how questions. See, that's not how God operates. This is how God operates. God's like, I know what needs to be done. I know who needs to be reached. I know what needs to be accomplished. I am just looking for a who, and once I find the who, don't worry about the how. Because obstacles for you are opportunities 
for me. I'm telling you, if we would have stayed on Chapel Hill Road until we knew how it was all going to work out, we wouldn't have five campuses with thousands of people this weekend. We would still be sitting on Chapel Hill Road. And you know what? It works the exact same way in your personal life. God nudges you. He lays something on your heart. And as you begin to face the obstacles of following through on what God has called you to do, you need to understand this. They're not obstacles. They are opportunities. In fact, Donnie hit on this last week. Where we are the weakest, where we are the most incapable, that is the point where God can show up and get glory for himself. In fact, it's when we're the weakest that God is the strongest. So you, it would have been an entirely different story if another soldier would have stepped up, gone out, fought Goliath, and beat him. You know, maybe there's some guy that's thinking, wow, his daughter's not that great looking, but you know, it's better than being single, and, and half the, the wealth of his kingdom, and family not paying any taxes, I'll fight him. And maybe he goes out, and because, you know, Goliath, he's gotten a little soft, because 40 days, nobody will fight him, but somebody's finally coming out, and he's jacked up on adrenaline, and he's jacked up because he's drinking Red Bull, and he comes in way too fast, pumped up way too much, and he overswings, loses his balance. A little Jewish soldier runs up behind him, pops him in the solar plexus, kicks him in his bad knee, goes down, cuts his head off. You know what everybody would have been saying? Lucky guy, lucky guy, he had a good day. But the amazing thing about this story is that it wasn't a soldier at all. I mean, David had nothing going on externally that made him look like a good candidate for this task. And God's like, wow, I like those odds. Send in the shepherd. I will get maximum glory from this one. And I'm telling you, in the same way, it's in the point of your weakness that God can get the maximum glory. In fact, you know what David did? David... Did exactly what he knew how to do. Had a slingshot. And he trusted God to do the other 95%. And we know the story. God came through in a powerful way. But I want you to understand, in the very same way, your potential in God's kingdom depends on your willingness to see the obstacles that you're facing as opportunity for God to show up and do something unique, to do something powerful in your life. In other words, when you are sure that God has placed a burden on your heart, maybe to reach someone, or you're sure that God has placed a burden on your heart to do something, to get involved with a particular ministry, to make a certain kind of financial gift, maybe to get involved with a certain kind of project, that is your cue to move and do what you know how to do while trusting God to do what only he knows how to do. I'll give you another example. We got an opportunity to start a campus in North Raleigh. I don't need to worry about how we're going to do it. You know what I need to determine? Are we the who? Is it what God wants us to do? And then we do what we know how to do, and we trust God to show up and do what only he can do. It's not your job to get hung up on the how. It's not your job to wait until you have all your questions answered before you move. Once God places that burden on your heart and you know he wants you to do something or you know he wants you to reach someone, don't let the how question become an obstacle because how is always an opportunity for God to show up in the circumstances of your life. Let me give you some steps that will help you begin to apply what we've talked about this weekend. Step number one, you gotta identify the obstacles in your life. I mean, every one of us, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, I guarantee you he's nudging us to do something because he wants to bring his kingdom to this earth, right? It's his desire that no one perishes, but everybody comes to repentance, right? If you're not being nudged, there's a good chance you may not even be a follower of Jesus Christ, right? 
See, when God begins to nudge you, you got to identify what is the obstacle. Let me give you a statement that will help you do that. I want God to use me, but. Hmm. I want God to use me, oh, but. However you finish that sentence, whatever goes in that blank, that's your obstacle. Maybe God has laid it on your heart to reach out to a certain person that you know is lost and their life can be changed by hearing the gospel. Maybe God has laid it on your heart, I don't know, maybe to go into full-time ministry. Whatever that blank is, however you finish that sentence, that's God's opportunity to show his glory and his power in your life. Now, for some of you, that blank represents fear. Fear. That's what's keeping you from moving, just fear. So let me, let me give you some good news. God loves to use scared people. He, in fact, sometimes I think the only kind of people God uses are scared people. Have you ever read the Old Testament? When God told Moses he was going to be delivered, he had every excuse in the world. He was scared to death. Gideon was scared to death to be the captain of the army. Jonah was scared to death. God said, go to Nineveh. There's going to be a great revival. Well, Jonah had been watching Fox News. He knew all about those Ninevites. They were bad dudes, right? So he decides to go to Tarshish. What happens? He makes that first amphibian landing right there in, you know, to Nineveh and shares with them the message of God. And historians believe that up to 750,000 people turn from their idol worship to the one true God. You know? My point is this. If you're scared to death to do what you know God wants you to do, guess what? You're a candidate to do it. I mean, you're overqualified right there. For some of you, that, that blank represents your reputation. You know, there's somebody in your life, maybe you went to school with, high school, college, maybe you've worked with them, and you would love nothing more, you would love nothing more than to reach them. You're like, I would love to reach, you fill in the blank, but you're like, man, we, we, we just spent so many years smoking dope and drinking and partying our brains out before I became a Christian. They would never, ever take me seriously. Let me tell you something. God loves people with bad reputations. Matthew had a horrible reputation. He was a tax collector, taking money from his own people and giving it to the Romans. He wrote a book of the Bible. Paul had a horrible reputation, killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, destroying churches. And God says, I'll use you to write half the New Testament. Peter denied three times that he knew Jesus. He had a bad reputation among followers and even among those who weren't followers. Even the ones who weren't followers, like that Peter, he's a, he's a sleazebag. He threw Jesus right under the bus, right? I'm telling you, your reputation, it may be an obstacle for you, but it's an opportunity for God, which leads to step number two. See your obstacles as opportunity. Maybe it's a dysfunctional background. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a temptation. Maybe it is fear. Maybe it's your reputation. You got to constantly remind yourself, not an obstacle, an opportunity. It's not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. It's not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. Step three, be willing to be the who and trust God to show you the how. You kind of have to get to the place where you're like, God, I have no idea how to do what it is that I know you want me to do. But I'm, I'm going to be like David. I'm going to show up with my slingshot because that's all I got. And I'm going to be the who in this situation. And I'm going to trust you to show me how. And when that becomes the attitude of your heart, I'm telling you, God is going to use you and it's not going to play out in your mind like you think it's going to play out in his mind, but whatever does, right? 
But God will take your life and he will use you in a way that will absolutely surprise the socks off of you. Because he's looking for people who are willing to see obstacles as opportunities for him to show up and do what he absolutely loves to do. Let me finish the story and then I'll let you go. Verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. See, Saul's still trying to do it his own way. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fasted on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, but he was not used to them. I can just see David, like, and the, the, the metal, the armor's not even moving. You know, David's just like, I, I can't do this, right? He said, I cannot go in these. He said this all because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones. People always say, why five? If you're so confident in God, why five? Well, if you read 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, I can find at least three other brothers that Goliath had. So maybe there was a fifth. I don't know. Maybe there was a fourth, right? So maybe David's like, I'll just be prepared just in case his brothers come out. So he's, he's just ready, right? He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked over and saw that he was a little, that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. This guy was not politically correct, okay? Now, this is the really cool part. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord says, for the battle, key phrase, the battle is the Lord, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. I bet he did, right? And almost as an afterthought. So David tromped over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. Now this is what's interesting. Years later, historians and archaeologists, have, you know, they've excavated all this area of Israel. And they've come across some of this Philistine armor that Goliath would have used. And you know what they tell us? They tell us that, that David had about this much of a chance to sink that stone. About this much. If he'd have hit him anywhere else, maybe he would have put an eye out. Maybe he would have broken a bone somewhere. Probably would have just bounced off of his helmet. But he had about this much of a chance. Do you know how much room God needs to use you to do something great for him? Do you know how much of a chance he needs? Needs about that much. That's all he needs. In fact, you know what I think God says? I love those kinds of odds. So what is it that God has called you to do? Who is it that God has called you to reach? Would you be willing this weekend to say, God, you know what? I don't have the strength. I don't have the capability. I don't have the talent. I certainly don't have the money. But God, the battle is yours. And so 
I'm, I'm just going to be the who. And I'm going to trust that you're going to show me how. I'm just going to be like David and I'm going to do what I know how to do. And then I'm going to trust everything else up to you to do what you know what to do, how to do. You know, I was, I was moving, God was working in my heart to move here and start this church. I remember these kinds of conversations because I knew that 90% of guys who start churches fail and fail miserably. And I knew that I was in a church in California where tough church, tough crowd, meanest people I've ever met in my life. However, they took great care of us financially. We lived in a beautiful home with a pool and we went to Hawaii for summer vacations. My kids were in our little private, our big private school there and Laura taught music part-time on the side, and life was really, really good for the Lee family. And I knew moving here, we were going to start all over again, and a 90% chance that what we tried to do would fail. And I told God, I know you want me to do this. I just don't know how. I'm not against, I just don't know how. I don't know how to start a church, build a church. God, I was a PE major. Most days, I can't find my rear end with two hands and a flashlight. You know what I'm saying? God, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, Right? But I always felt like God was saying, well, what can you do? I like people. In fact, I, I love people. And it was as if God said, good, we'll go with that. You go and love people, and I'll take care of everything else. You be the who, I'll show you how. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 1, 27. It says, God uses the foolish things of the world to profound the wise. And I've often said, if the Bible was a dictionary, my picture would be right there. This is what I'm talking about, right? But I will tell you this. When God gets hold of somebody who's just willing to be the who, there's absolutely nothing that he cannot accomplish through that person. Nothing. So what is it God is nudging you to do? Who is it that he is nudging you to reach? You don't need to know how. In fact, God won't even tell you how until you decide to be the who. And then he'll be like, buckle up. Because here we go. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, one, that you would even use us. I don't get it. I don't know why you didn't just use animals. Speak through animals or angels, but you, you said, you're it, plan A, no plan B. And you've promised that you would never leave us, you would never forsake us. And we see all through the Bible of people that didn't have the qualifications, people that had sordid past, bad reputations, dysfunctional families, murderers. And you were like, I need you to be the who. And in every story, they were like, but I don't know how. God, I'm sure that when you told Noah to build that boat and it had never rained, he's like, really? But God, you saved the human race through him. I don't know what you're nudging each and every one of us to do, but I guarantee you that if we're following you, you're nudging us to do something because there's too many lost people and too many hurting people around us for us to sit idly by. Father, I pray that whatever you're nudging us to do, today would be the day we would say, God, I'll be the who. And I'm going to trust you to show me how. 
And may we let our light shine before men in such a way that just like with David, it brings glory to our Father in heaven. Not to us, but to you. In your name we pray, amen.